This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up tonight on Buy Into It, the co-founders or a couple of the co-founders of that startup show. And we've also been uh, fortunate enough to meet a French game designer who's having a brief sojourn in Melbourne. So we'll be speaking to him as well. Tonight on Bite Into It, you are joined by Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. Mr. James Noble. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to some news, um, local news. The ACCC, uh, we're following up on a story that we reported on quite a few weeks ago, is set to reject the uh, banks pulling together to bargain on Apple Pay. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Have you guys been following this story? A little bit. Um, I mean, from the very start, I have to say that I agree with it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy that mm, this is the result too. Yeah, I mean, I understand if it was like a consortium in in most other industries, you probably think it was unfair. But because of the banks being the banks and trying to do this, I think it's it's quite fa- it's fair. It's it's odd to think on the flip story of this and how how does Apple consider the NZ more a bank than the others? Like, so so this is this is the um, the story about uh, Apple whether they were giving people access to their near-field communication technology in the iPhone to enable them to offer digital wallets mm. uh, in competition with their own Apple Pay sort of system. So I guess what we're talking about is Apple has done a deal with ANZ to make it Oh, that's possible. right, because they take a small clip of the ticket, don't mm. they? Right. So, yep. and they... But the other banks were saying, oh, we don't want to do it that way. You should just give us access to your hardware yep. and we don't, want to, we don't want to give you a share of the takings. Yeah. Um, um, I don't I mean... So they wanted to negotiate together. Uh, I think they do the same. Mm. Like, everyone else does the same. Why is this any different? Like yeah. Visa. There's Visa One Pay. There's Apple Pay. There's Afterpay. There's there's so many different ways to pay these days. There's, it, 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 and they all take a small clip. Yeah. And the fact that they, I think they, everyone's trying to diversify and increase their revenue, aren't they? By going, I'm not just going to make interest off the credit card that you've just spent. I'm actually yeah. going to make interest off the off. Of you using it in the first place. Well, what's great is that the ACCC has really uh, made their ruling, well, looking to make their ruling on the basis of consumer interests yeah. and saying that competition between different banks is in the consumer's interest. Mm, Therefore, we don't want people, you yeah. know, or having or the banks all having the same deal with Apple and, and we don't want to force a company to, to do a deal with these banks in a way. Yeah. I think they're all kind of, they're, they're, they're actually, they're, it's in Australia that they're not, they're actually a much smaller fish in the global market, aren't they, than, than you would think. Yeah. And they think they are, like it's, yeah. we're only, what, 24, 26 million people? I mean, yep. obviously they've got overseas um, accounts and access, but, yeah. but Apple's just a little bit bigger. It's an interesting <laughs> market, though. I mean, we... Just a little. Well, our smartphone penetration, though, has traditionally been ahead of the curve, and so that's partly why it's... Yeah, we like three and, phones each or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, man, can we recycle some of this? I definitely have two ongoing phones at the moment, so I can understand that. Yeah, me too. That. I have to say, I'm trying to... I'm the guy that's always in on the show. It seems to have the Apple news, <laughs> and I've got an Android phone and the new Google Pixel my in my bag and I'm and I'm just about to swap over just as I've received the Apple's annual book of like the entire history of their design. Well I'm feeling very classic platform agnostic here as yeah. my iPad is starting to give up the ghost and I'm currently on the Lenovo yoga pad and you know there's all sorts of yeah. things we're juggling trying to trying to just get the job done here. Yeah. I know it's off track but do you ever do you ever notice that remember when there was that ruling years ago, I think it was Nokia that were building phones that were were designed to break? 
and they were at the rule and they got massive fines and it all kind mm. of exposed planned that. obsolescence yeah that kind of plan but and but what seems to have happened is instead of doing the hardware they're doing the software so they make updates that oh. are automatically updated to make it eventually that your device just simply can't run on the operating system and it's such a shame too when you look yeah. at this hardware it's in excellent condition it doesn't no moving parts so yeah and it would be a, it's just such a waste to make it run poorly mm. it's an engineer's nightmare it makes you want to weep like yeah. it's just it's just not on <laughs> Could you but just apparently not it that is screwed just to, just quite enough it's funny that you mentioned that um i haven't i haven't got it with me but uh, i did read an article um looking at uh, a group that's trying to lobby the Australian government to make it illegal for us not to be able to fix our own hardware and repair our own hardware. Did you mm. did you see this little tidbit of news? Uh, I didn't see it here, did you? No. no, uh, no, no might no, have to chase that up for, did, the, for the Twitter was afterwards. Was it Finland or Sweden somewhere in Europe recently changed their laws so that you and created tax breaks for, and to incentivise people to repair things? Yeah, and uh, in the in the past, generate more jobs. Like yeah, in the past, waste. we've seen um, the EU make a lot of agreements around uh, consolidating plug types, for example, to mm. make it make it compulsory for people to have universal, you know, yeah. adapters for their for their power source, yeah. which is kind of cool. It's yeah. a beginning. It's a very slow burn, though, isn't it? It's tough. It's tough. Um, what else we got in the news? So I think uh, another local um, bit of news at the moment is the um, AINet and TPG have had a serious uh, rise in uh, in complaints. Mm. Um, the um, the telecommunications industry ombudsman has uh, released the, his or her uh, annual report, and although overall complaints have gone down, AINet and TPG have gone up by fifty percent. Mm. So it's um it's it's good news for everyone overall, but not so good for uh, those of us who may or may not have contracts with IONET and TPG. Yeah, what do they um, say anything about what they think might be driving the increase in, in complaints? Um, just reading through at the moment, it's... Uh, I'm not, it yeah. used to be that, you know, Vodafone had a lot of problems and it was usually about, you know, range, connectivity, that sort of thing. Well, Vodafone didn't originally have their own um, towers, right? They were always sort of sub-leasing mm. other towers, but then they got bumped down the, 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 priority, the, list. the priority list because they were doing that but also if you think about it, the internet in australia we've kind of got a band-aid a lot of band-aids and it's stuck together with cell tape and a bit of chewing gum to keep us connected to the rest of the world and mm. um with the changes in government over the last few years it seems to be getting worse that we've got so many different op- ways of getting access to it that aren't actually you mm. may think you're getting ca- fiber or cable or um adsl and but you're actually it's all going it's it, it's connected to a series of different pieces to make the whole thing so my, my faster internet at home is actually just two connections joined together rather than the yeah <laughs> i i feel like um it seems like the government thinks that internet access for us is all about downloading and that yeah. downloading is all about entertainment it mm. seems to completely miss the story about the yeah. uploading and the collaborating on work and the increasing needs for video connections for comms sharing files absolutely yeah. yeah, and you think about you think about uh, just using a phone. You're just you're connecting. You're using Google Maps. That's using the internet. And it's interesting how I had the same discussion today with someone else about uh, most of the world they charge you based on speed rather than based on download, and that makes much more sense because you can't download as much if you're on a slower speed anyway. So then you're paying for the your connection to it rather than what you're connecting about the information you're trying to receive. So mm. in Australia, you go fight you know, twelve gig, gig for the price of six. Like it's irrelevant that actually. 
they know you're going to, you either can't use it all on the network anyway. So why not switch it all to be, mm. I'm paying for this speed, this speed, or this speed. Mm. Hey, um, there was some UK news this week, and it really did make me think. I don't know if anyone's been watching Black Mirror, but of the last episode of the current season of Black Mirror that you can get on Netflix don't, if you don't, want. Don't, don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> mention it, but it does, it. it does have a, a have a, a big theme going through it about. Um, uh, surveillance and the UK has just legalized um, what they're calling the, the snooping um, bill. So it's the bill legalizes global surveillance activities, including bulk data collection and hacking. Um, the, and apparently, the, the UK has been doing this for a while, but this is kind of formalizing their their capability to do this. Um, it also requires internet and phone companies to store communications data generated by email, apps and internet use for 12 months and make that information accessible to police and security services. Now, this is quite similar to, um, in some ways, the data retention acts that have been mm. proposed in Australia, you know, on and off mm. for quite a few years now. So it's an unsettling precedent and, um, you know, I'm not really for it. Aside from anything else, you're creating a massive haystack of things to search through. And, um, you know, you're doing that without any suspicion of the people involved. Mm. And you're also, I guess, you know, you're creating a massive piece of work, a massive tasty bit of data to, for people to go after. And it's expensive to do this sort of stuff. So, we, you know, who's paying for it? Those costs are being passed on to the consumer, presumably. Yeah, if they're going to have to store it and where, yeah, like yeah. Where, is it, where is it stored? So, so there's so many negatives to this. They'll spin it as being like for security reasons. It's right? always like for, for security. For our, yeah. for our safety, they're going to check my what I bought on eBay. And that's right. how <laughs> this overreach into privacy always goes on. And, and you know, it's... It's particularly mm. concerning when you've got um, some some wild things happening in politics around the world, and you really can't be sure that that people taking on this data have a real commitment to yeah. open democracy. You know, you're seeing suppression of of, um, of protesting these days. You know, suppression of media. You know, what is what is facts and what is what is not. Yeah. It's such a problematic environment. It, it concerns me seeing these sort of I bills think, pass. Yeah, and same with the doing the um, they find it so police are getting people's mobile phone records things like that and they're just it's supposed to be sort of for certain reasons you can get it and you have to go through a few checklists to make sure that it's approved for you to be able to the further the the powers that be having access to it Mm. and then they they would discover that they're asking it for nearly every single time even though it's not Warranted. Yeah. That's and, what's and the, with this, they kind of think yeah. that it's just there, so I might as well get it all. And every single pool of this sort of data, you know, ends up with lots of people who can access it, who are employees of companies, you know, who are meant mm. to be able to access it. But you always get, you know, disgruntled partners of people, um, looking up, you know, partners and ex-partners and all this, all this sort of thing. It's, it's such an awful kind of, yeah. President, yeah. You see, I'm just reading the bottom bit here. It says the ISP and mobile phone providers will keep a record of every website visited from everyone in the British network. The data will be stored in network and collected by, uh, but police and many government departments will be able to access a central search location using a tool, search tool. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of. Yeah. It's basically another database, right? I yeah. Mean, it's all happening, but it's how to police it. Yeah. And and data that's not sensitive one day can become sensitive the next day with mm. um you know retroactive application Sending an of email laws. From the wrong account and then you know new government comes in and you've said something unfavourable you know yeah. things can happen. It'd be it'd be wonderful if they could then be accountable for things they say they're going to do. Mm. I see some happier news on this list though, James. 
It's a bit of a shift, yes. It tell, is. tell us about power laces. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so back in, in my teenage years, of, uh, well, not even teenage years, actually, yeah, back in the mid-'80s, there was a certain young man called Michael J. Fox that was uh, in a DeLorean that went uh, back in time and forward in time during, episode, during the second show, uh, movie, um, and he had power laces on these uh, pair of beautiful night kicks. Well, they've actually just been released yesterday to the global public after taking uh, 20 years to develop. I think it was 17 years to develop. Yeah. Um, they're not cheap, but I still want some. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do, yeah. James. I, I find it disappointing that they've waited until a year after everyone lost their minds about it being the they actual year. They tried to get them out in time. Yeah. But they yeah. were having issues, like technical issues with shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but, but James, don't you have the regular fear that that some of us have about first gen tech? Don't you want to wait for version two? Oh, I wouldn't be wearing them. <laughs> no, I, I, you, that is you, the you, worst. It would slice <laughs> your feet off. It'd be like garroting your legs. Yeah, I would love to say that I could afford to be able to pay seven bucks for a pair of kicks, but alas, no. Um, so what the technology and the difficulty was, they didn't want them to be just a casual shoe. They actually wanted them to be useful so you they can then adapt it into different types of shoes from running shoes training shoes basketball shoes etc etc there was some people who were very great who were who were part of the nike world sort of like curry Irving, uh, and um who else was there i can't remember another uh, another nike, sneaker freaker another sneaker freaker who worked who get, earns millions already they filmed them trying them on as you could see every one of them turning back into a kid again <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't yeah it was quite exciting it's amazing technology and feet to be able to make it what i thought was and, nice is that they've um used the technology in some of the exact model that was in back to the future i think they've made they made 20 pairs or something of those yeah and they're going to be auctioning 20, they already auctioned them yeah, yeah they yeah they've auctioned them for um parkinson's disease which yeah. is you know the disease that Michael J. Fox suffers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, no. It, it, it's a great feat. I noticed you said that. I said, I'm not taking <laughs> that. You said that, and I wanted to make <laughs> the point that you made the joke without realising it, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Oh, that's beautiful. I think that um, that we should we should rest on our on our puns and, and move forwards in the show uh, because, you know, we might not reach these lofty heights again, James. Mm. Uh, it is our last bite into it for the year and we're pretty excited about it. Coming up next, we'll be speaking to a couple of the co-founders of That Startup Show. That Startup Show is Australia's first ever independent live slash YouTube hybrid show focusing on the fast-growing Australian entrepreneurial boom and the culture that surrounds it. It's hosted by Dan Illick and um, the series brings together a whole new generation of businesses, creatives, startups, VCs, capital, incubators and entrepreneurs and other keywords to the public on a six-hour journey exploring the ups and downs of being a startup. We are very fortunate to have in studio with us this evening two of the co-founders of that startup show. We have Anna Reeves, welcome. Hello. And Ahmed Salama. Hey. Now, Ahmed, you've been in on the show a, a year ago, but uh, Anna, you're new to us, so thank you for, for coming on the bite journey. No problem. Now, we thought on our last show of 2016 for Byte, we would love to have a bit of navel-gazing, indulge ourselves a little bit and uh-huh. chat with some fellow scenesters about just what you've seen going on. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey over 2016? Oh, wow. Where do we start? <laughs> um, well, we basically released the show last year and uh, we released on a platform called BitTorrent Bundle. And um, to our great surprise, uh, the six episodes that were released were very well received and we had nearly over a million downloads of the show. Um, that took us on a really huge uh, journey, basically. Um, from that point on, we decided to take the show on tour 
and we toured across Australia and went to all sorts of weird and wonderful e- startup ecosystems from right from Brisbane to Perth to uh, right up to the sunny coast and and we even went to New Zealand as well. So that was sort of a, a quite a few months of, of touring and and really bringing the um, the show to to people and, and starting to uncover unearth the best and brightest startups that we were seeing just wanted to find out what, what else was going on across the country um and from there we uh we have um been doing a lot of local sponsoring a lot of local community events we've been working with um general assembly and lots of groups around uh supporting local events and also doing uh another a uh, huge event that we did um, in the, going into the live streaming space. So I might let Ahmed talk a little bit about that. Um, we did an event called Moonhack, which was uh, very, very well received as well. So it was one of it was a Facebook Live event. It was I think it was one of the first events on Facebook Live at that time in that style. So we sort of brought our TV style uh, and brought it into the world of social media because that is basically where everything's sort of going at the moment. And it was an event where we, um, Code Club Australia was bringing together kids to break the world record for the most number of kids coding at once, which is such an unusual record. Yeah, we were really fortunate to be able to speak to Kelly uh, Tagalan from Code Club Australia just ahead of that that event because it was really exciting to see kids being brought to the cutting edge of this space and given opportunities to have a bit of a play. Absolutely. I think it was, um, and the idea behind the actual live stream event was to actually to get the parents on, get everyone talking, get the kids, because it was a, a very time sensitive event. Um, and we were doing the live stream side and we, we were joking around that we was almost like we were like the guys from the dish because it was, <laughs> Facebook Live was quite new in that time. Um, it was sort of a little bit earlier this year. Um, so Ahmed, uh, I haven't participated in a Facebook Live event yet because the times haven't been quite right and I've seen things pop up occasionally. But what does it feel like when you're in the throes of that and trying trying to control or direct an event that's that's in that space. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, um, it, you know, it very much is live television. I mean, anything that can go wrong probably <laughs> will go wrong. And you involve um, children, so that was why. And it involved children. Um, and couple that with the fact that, you know, this platform is very new, so people are interacting with it in, in different ways and, you know, um, you know, your internet connection drops out or anything, you know, your feed's cut. So there's a lot of considerations, new considerations to, to have there when you're broadcasting this medium. But it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely a bit of an, an adrenaline rush going out live, you know, breaking a world record, which we did with 10,000 kids coding at once. So, yeah, that was pretty pretty cool. That's incredible. Yeah. I yeah. love that 10,000 kids are coding. Yeah, how, yeah. How quick is it they catch <laughs> on and understand it? Like, yeah. yeah. They would, they've been grown up. They've grown up with it, yeah. whereas yeah. we – we it, it came into um, prevalent um, – no, it was more it – was, it wasn't part of our growing up. We didn't sit at computers and play computer games as much as – the only just starting to is, like, really basic, mm. you know, 56 – was it 64K computer and yeah. things like that. Like, you didn't know how to code. You just played these games. And now it's just – it's part of the curriculum, hopefully. And these kids can just look at it and go, yep, I, I get this. It makes sense. Like, how does that make sense to you? You can JavaScript better than I can when you're 10. That yeah, is yeah. kind of scary when they could do that. Yeah. But I think that's the whole beauty of um, – yeah. Co-Club Australia clubs, and it's not just that, it's also Girl Geek Academy, they're doing lots mm. of stuff with kids. So we're starting to see a lot of organisations coming into schools, and even the curriculums themselves, I'm sure, are starting to move into that. It's just a necessity. I mean, we're entering a world where 
with your kids really you know technology is taking us to places you know we haven't been they're going to be the ones taking us there yeah. so yeah. Uh, makes sense doesn't it and, and it's quite exciting to see a generation kind of shift from consuming content and consuming games and all that stuff to making them mm. um because you know like it's it's uh when i grew up you know you could fiddle around with a computer and you know Yes, you know, not all of us were coding, but you can at least, you know, hack in there and, and, and change things. And then now we've got a generation that's grown up with iPhones where you can't really, you know, open it up or do anything. And then seeing that shift back to, okay, let's teach kids how to code. You know, let's teach them how to build uh, program uh, uh, games or uh, things that they usually use to consuming. Yeah. Um, so that's really exciting. I think that so, idea of it being just about games is kind of gone it's not it makes a lot more practical uses it can be done yeah, for the yeah. greater good it can help other things rather than it just being coding was always associated with just playing computer games and yeah that's yeah. just gone now i think that's a fantastic approach that we yeah, can get these making things yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah so i love that at one end you're doing this outreach with communities and um and involving kids in the journey but with your show, you've taken um, you've taken on the whole startup aesthetic, and you've made the show itself about pitching and about how you have to behave and what you have like the learning journey you have to go on to be a successful startup. Um, so, I wonder, you know, what sort of feedback have you had from the, your participants in in series one about their their journeys and and how you've helped them along that way. Well, I think that's a really interesting question because I think um, the show was was pitched to bring a bit of lightness into and to industry. So there's a lot of the can be quite serious events, tech events, and we started off with a little bit more of an industry focus. But really, technology affects everybody. So we're starting. I mean, if tech affects everything. There's tech startups. Tech is in is in everything. So that was sort of expanding the audience was really part of that reach, outreach initially, as you said. Um, and I think people just, I mean, we described it as Jimmy Fallon meets Dragon's Den. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea, and it was shot in a pub, so it's Savoy Tavern. So it was shot in an informal atmosphere, had a bit of a comedy club central feel to it. Um, and that was deliberate because it was about bringing fun and lightness, but also opening the conversation. So the panellists basically become judges and they judge the, the pitches, but they also have a really interesting discussion, you know, intercut with, you know, some comic sort of banter with Dan and that sort of stuff. And that was really deliberate to do. Um, but Dan has some fantastic um, roles sort of debunking the yeah, jargon around this sector, absolutely. which is great. And that was part of the, the, the messaging as well, which is, you know, this is for everybody because this is our future. It's the future of work. It's the future of play. It's the future of politics. And that's what we love seeing. And that's why um, the startups that have come on the show, for them, it was it was just incredible exposure. Um, so we had people that had started possible campaigns by three days later, they'd basically got met their goals um even just from the people in the room and then extending onto the social channels and then later we went on to virgin in flight and people were seeing it all over the country on, on planes um and we even had one one uh startup who said that he was getting calls from people who'd seen the show on the plane so it was actually a really interesting mm-hmm. other channel for them which sometimes when you are starting out it's really hard to get your startup out there and so this was just um 
you know, an opportunity. I'm, I'm kind of pleased that, that your show really rewards the, the bravery of people bringing their business ideas to the table and letting those those difficult points. We talk about failing fast a lot in startup culture, but it must be tremendously scary to try and do that in public and then, you know, pivot and adjust your ideas and do all those startup-y things that we have to do. Um, how did, like, we saw a lot of mentoring go on on the show, but was that happening behind the scenes as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, for us, um, we went through a process of, uh, you know, teaching, uh, well, not so much teaching, but coaching uh, the, the startups on how to pitch. They might have amazing pitches in, in, a, in a room full of investors, but, you know, how do you pitch in, on TV? Yeah. And the idea is that you want to engage and you want to, you know, maybe even be a bit entertaining. And, in fact, that actually helps you when you're pitching in a room full of investors as well. So, you know, we had these little sessions, which Anna kind of led, pitch, and pitch clubs and yeah. Anna and Sally, and um, we went to kind of uh, uh, do these workshops. And I think that was really, um, that was really important because... Uh, you know, pitching your idea is all about communication and storytelling. And for us as storytellers, like, that's really important. And we were able to kind of, you know, bring that at the forefront in the, in the show. So, and, and comedy helps as well. So we took a bit of a comedic <laughs> approach in the show and, you know, we I want really to, appreciated that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, you know, we, we want people to feel safe to kind of talk about their failures and, yeah. you know, without, you know, getting all depressed and, you know, which, which, which often happens. Um, so yeah. Uh, I can't not mention one of my favourite segments of yours, which is shit, excuse me, venture capitalists to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should have put a, a mild uh, language warning out there for that one. And um, they do say a lot of things, don't they? They do, yeah. That was a hilarious segment because that was actually one of our mm. investors that was star at the start. <laughs> right, I was wondering yeah. who that was. <laughs> and everyone just thought, oh, he's amazing. He looks like Joe Hockey. Oh, my God, you know, he's an actor. <laughs> but actually he was. He was a real VC. And that's what, what was sort of even more hilarious because he um, he embraced that, he embraced that, you know, taking the mickey out of himself a bit and um, and all the jargon. And we just took the meme, you know, uh, and basically sort of made him. It was very US-centric, you know, yeah. uh, Back when so and so and I went to Stanford together, yada yeah. yada. I would love to hear a Melbourne version because it's only a matter of time. Right? <laughs> yes, that is true. We are booming at the moment, definitely. So, can I ask any of the highlights of the startups that you've uh, uncovered around Australia? Please, your highlights. Got it, one or two. Um, so many. I think the first one we have to mention is probably the winner of the show, Org, which is a motion synth technology, which is basically playing a musical instrument in the air. It's like the air guitar has come to life, but it's in in such an incredibly brilliant manner and hardware device. Um, so Josh Young, who won the show, we took him actually on a trip around America. Um, and it was an amazing trip. So we've got a little story coming out around that trip. But um, I think we had him here on. Uh, yeah, he might have been on already. Yeah, that's um, took photos of it. Yeah, great. and we saw him really shift. It was wonderful seeing someone really transform and and how they develop their confidence as mm. they start to do more pitching and then get exposed to so like in the US because it's such a different world over there. Um, and that's certainly something that. Yeah, we continue to check in with Josh about his journey and he's done really, really well. He's got investment now and things yeah. are happening, which is awesome. Um, and I guess, I suppose the other thing that really inspires us is, is again, things that are a little bit out of the ordinary. So we, we certainly, um, like to look at things that are stretching the boundaries. So startups in space is a thing that we, we're looking at space startups wow. at the moment. 
which are really cool. And there's one called Cube Rider, which is awesome. Um, so Solange um, Cuman and her partner, Sebastian Chow, they're just amazing. They're doing some really... It's called the Uber of spaceships. Um, and <laughs> basically what they do is they buy time on an international space station and then they get students to actually write code and run experiments on the International Space Station. Oh, my wow. gosh. That so, is the best. <laughs> yeah, and they started it at uni. They literally, like, a classic story, you know. Um, so they're selling, they're selling, um, also selling opportunities to um, get room on a SpaceX mission. Um, wow. To and get the code into the mission. You've just pitched the first timeshare I've ever been interested in, so <laughs> congratulations. Exactly. Well, it's it's to, all to them, and they're... they're um, <laughs> Yeah, I think the reason they started that was because they wanted, A, they wanted to inspire kids to do STEM, so that was a really good way to do that. And B, they wanted to solve the issue of Australia not necessarily having its own space program. Like, we do a lot of work with satellites and supporting space programs, but we don't have our own space program. So that was, um, yeah, that was basically why they started it. So we can't let you out of here without um, letting you be a bit lighthearted because that is just the nature of your show and your talent. Sometimes we like to have a little bit of fun with startup culture and in other years we've seen some really funny alliances with the paleo movement or with, you know, people in startups getting really obsessed with living forever and different cryogenic things (laughs) and, you know, having soylent meal replacements. What kind of wild and wacky things have you seen in your travels in startup culture over the last year? I've got one. Have you, you want to go? No, you <laughs> Well, the one I thought was really out there was one in Tasmania. Um, it was a, an electric monster truck. So it was like. To scale? Like, yeah, it was amazing. So this guy, he used to love as a kid, <coughs> he used to love, um, little ro- remote control, um, trucks and cars. Yes. And then he decided to build a massive version of that, but an electric version. So, basically taking on Elon Musk at his own game. <laughs> and that was his startup. He was looking for investment for it. He'd done the prototype. It was had pictures of it. It was like, wow. So most electric cars are quite quiet. Can you hear yeah. the monster truck coming? I, that's what I mean. It's like it doesn't <laughs> have the same kind of... It doesn't have the roar. Yeah, but the it doesn't, roar. It's like, it doesn't make sense. It's really silent, but... Taking the monster out of the monster truck. Exactly. Silent but deadly. Silent but deadly. Yeah. <laughs> so that was everything. There's always one. I mean, if you've got another one, I was, I've... I've got another question because I hear the word startup a lot in my in, in our industry. When are you no longer a startup? Because the kind of people kind of attach it to themselves quite easily. Yeah, I've been doing this for eleven years. I'm a startup. <laughs> oh, oh totally. I think in Australia you're always a startup. I think Commonwealth <laughs> Bank is calling themselves a startup. Oh, right. wow. oh really? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I it used to be called creating a business, right? It <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a thing. Getting or, a job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I All think right. it's a state of mind is what they, they describe it as. It's just a way of doing things. But even, yeah, Uber still calls itself Pinterest, a startup. Yeah. Airbnb is still a startup as well. I think everyone's a startup, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely are. So uh, what can our listeners look out for next from you in the new year? Well, uh, I can tell you what's coming up right now. Oh, right now, we're doing. Yeah. Um, this weekend, actually, we are doing a live show from... The Future Assembly, which is more or less like the Tomorrowland of Melbourne. It's like full of inventions. It's a festival. It's, it's incredible. So we're going to be doing a live show there this weekend. Um, we'll be streaming from Facebook. We're doing another live stream. Yay. And that's on Saturday at 11 if anyone wants to tune in and they can see what really interesting things are popping out, especially from Melbourne and, and Victoria. So that would be very, very cool. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, Anna Reeves, Ahmed Salama, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. We are very happy to welcome to studio Robin Villan. He, hi. Hi. He's a game designer and um, he's originally from France, but he's he's working in Melbourne at the moment and uh, happened to run into him at Melbourne International Games Week and just thought yep. he had such interesting perspectives on the scene that we had to have you in. So welcome to studio. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, um, you've had a really interesting career to date. You you studied games and um, you did a postgrad internship with Ubisoft, which mm-hmm. is quite a coup yeah. <laughs> getting into there. That's amazing. And um, you've also worked on uh, on games at Ivory Tower. Yeah. And so that was like a sister company to Ubisoft and now they're kind of even closer, closer together. Yeah. Uh, and then you've you've freelanced in games as well, so you can sort of see this trajectory where you've become more and more independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly uh, we've had you in Melbourne, and you've been teaching at JDC Academy, mm-hmm. JMC. Is, oh, sorry, JMC yeah. Academy. And uh, it's getting it's getting late in the night for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to hear a little bit about you know how that journey brought you to Melbourne of all places. Well, so it's like it's probably a mix of. Um, coincidences and uh, things like getting uh, aligning, uh, I guess. Um, I've been following, it probably started with like Twitter. Um, I've been following people from on Twitter for like ages, years. Um, and at some point I realized, so I was kind of hearing about the scene without realizing that I was kind of creating a network of people who were all based here. And eventually I realized at some point, wait a minute, there is this amazing community of people um, in Melbourne and it sounds super exciting. And so it became kind of um, a target for me, I guess. Um, so at some point I had the, the opportunity and I was like, okay, let's let's move, let's do it. <laughs> so you decided that you were ready for an overseas work opportunity. I hear that we nearly lost you to Canada. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so what happened was I was I was looking for a new like professional opportunity and I had either Montreal or Melbourne in mind and um the reasoning was I would love to go to Melbourne because, again, because of all the community and all of the people that I knew. But Montreal has such a high concentration of big studios. And I was like, this is probably the more reasonable choice for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be able to find a position more easily, right? Mm-hmm. And they speak um, French, you know. <laughs> and they speak French, yeah. Um, and so... I, I decided to apply for a visa in, in Montreal and, and it, it took so long. Uh, it didn't move at all. And like the visa process was terrible. And, um, and eventually I was like, okay, let's give it two more weeks. And if I don't hear back from them at that point, then I'll just go to Melbourne. And I didn't. And I applied for a visa, uh, to move here and I got in 30 minutes. Wow. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah, 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 excellent. Um, and I have this story where, like, I posted a message on Facebook um, to friends um, to get their opinion, and I tried to make it like the most impartial as I could. I was like, okay, so I have these two options: um, either Montreal or Melbourne. What do you think? What, what do you think would be better for me? And everyone was like, well, 
it looks like you've already made your choice. You really, it really sounds like you really want to go to Melbourne. <laughs> I didn't even realize that it was coming through uh, my initial message. So, so uh, what is different about the scene in Melbourne compared to the scene you had in France? And where were you in France again? Um, <laughs> I'm, I moved around a little yeah, bit. Um, yeah. I guess I was based uh, professionally in, in Paris mostly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's really hard to to compare. Um, right now in France, there is there is kind of an indie movement that is mm-hmm. um, growing, which mm-hmm. is really good. Uh, and and so yeah, I'm really happy about it. Um, but when I was here, it wasn't that strong, and it was a lot of. Um, so you have you have companies like Ubisoft, and you have Arcane, and. Um, Amplitude, um, other studios, and they're all good, but they're kind of focused on big mainstream games mostly. And when I when I moved here, the, the my first contact with uh, the Melbourne scene was through Free Play, um, the independent independent games festival that is hosted here. And so it was such a contrast because it was only games that are about. I don't know. They're so like joyful and and yeah. and it looks so friendly and and focused on on great experiences uh, accessible to everyone. I don't know. It's it's hard to quantify, but the the atmosphere was way more friendly and way more um, you know casual, I guess. Because um, everyone's trying to encourage each other to do a, produce a good product rather than competing against each other. Yeah, there's that, and there's. I feel like there's more artistry and, and like willingness to experiment and go off roads completely. Um, I like to think about um, Push Me Pull You, mm. which is a game that um, mm. came out very fairly recently. Which is, it's very it's a very weird game, um, but if you look at the aesthetics of it, it's all about very bright colors and and it's kind of a little bit childish um, and it evokes outdoor play um, so it's completely different it's not at all the same tone as some you know space sim or um, mass killing simulator <laughs> so how do you think your design aesthetic has been evolving since you know your days interning at Ubisoft you know you have worked on AAA games you've worked with things that look like real action based and military esque mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but you've also worked on real spacey things and, and other types of very different aesthetics um, do you think through that your aesthetic has been changing a lot or do you think that you just always sort of respond to a brief? Um, where, well, it's, it's, it's hard to say. My, 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 I feel that my aesthetic personally, like my ambitions, mm. uh, my creative amb- ambitions, I guess, have mm. been changing over time. And, and now I really want to, I really focus on the kind of experience that I'm trying to to get to to make to create um, and I want to I want to make things that are more about either have you know some kind of impact in the world or, or have some kind of like inspire people to to so empathy or emotional value exactly, rather than yeah, that dictates yeah the right exactly empathy is the right yeah. word um, 
And so I still have briefs, like I still work professionally at the moment on on a game that has very clear constraints when it comes to when what the design, what it can be, but um, but it's still very far removed from any sort of military mm, and because mm. I, I feel that that's not it 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 acts under a pretense that it's removed from anything like it's pure entertainment and mm. I don't feel that's true I feel that everything has some sort of value and contribution to to society and the world even even if it claims that it doesn't so I try to think about that and and really think about you know what does my work do um, so that's how I've been growing, I guess. <laughs> That's great to hear. I guess I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of um, we're used to talking about musicians and and understanding like a retrospective of an artist in terms of you know have they been someone who pulls things together from a whole lot of things or were they someone with a distinctive voice and being that you have a role hands-on but you also are in a teaching role now i wondered about you know what sort of guidance you provide to people about are they aspiring to find a voice and then you know follow that voice or is it about honing a craft over over time i mean obviously both are completely valid yeah that's it's so with video games it's very um (laughs) <laughs> you really have to combine both. I, I guess it's pretty hard because uh, it's such a technical... I mean, it's it's getting easier and easier. Uh, all of the engines are becoming more accessible and now we have uh, game engines and software which has, which are very, very easy to use. So um, that barrier kind of is fading away more and more. Mm. But it's still, like, it still requires so much technical skill. Mm. So you still have to... Um, like you, 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 it's very hard to just say, "I'm going to make a game and and just jump into it." You have to learn a little bit, so you have that aspect. But the most important thing, even more important than you have to go through that, but more important than all of that, and the thing that I've been trying to get my student to to think about is what what are you making and why are you making that? Mm. Um, a lot of them come into the course and thinking oh I really love games I really love yeah I really love to play the games that exist right now and so they are kind of biased uh, towards making the same kind of games because that's what they love and they haven't really taken the time to think about those critically and think about where they stand personally um, in in regards to to them Mm. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to get them to think about Mm. I think there's, I mean, there's lots of different types of games, and we all know I don't really play games, but mm-hmm. the games that I play are usually things more like um, mind games. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, we feel it, yeah, James. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, luminosity, like, and ones that are about educating or and training yourself, mm-hmm. and that because that is actually still a game, even though people sometimes don't consider it one, rather than it being a shoot 'em up or a you know, first person kind of game. I think there's a lot of variation. I sort, of, I think, I do think there's a it be, it'd be great if people are going to do these courses and learning that they start to realize and expose themselves to other game designers that have different opinions and ideas and kind of hopefully cross-pollinate their mm. way of thinking and your empathy sort of emotional mm. um, approach can build into that to come up with ideas. I think it's a really nice... You can get some really good games coming out, games in inverted commas coming mm. out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I really try to get them... Like, the first thing I do... Uh, when I meet them is 
try to get them to play a list of games that I have yeah. that are about a ton of different things. Like, because you have when you look at games from an outsider or mainstream point of view, you have a very like very similar list of games. They, the themes are very they they're mostly talk about the same things. Um, mm-hmm. I'm making a generalization here, but um, uh, and if you if you look a little bit deeper, you can see all of those. Um, yeah, smaller games that try to talk about way a, a way larger variety of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm trying to get them to play those, and if at the end they're like, uh, we we still want to make shooters, it's like oh fine, <laughs> uh, but at least you know you have had the chance to to try. find yeah to try mm-hmm. something else. Well, Robin, you're an excellent asset to the game scene in Melbourne. We're very fortunate to have you. you. I'm glad we won out over Montreal. (laughs) And, uh, you know, alphabetically, if nothing else, we would love to mention that Tech Collect have their Waste Not Want Not um, e-waste recycling thing happening on the 8th of December. So if you're a business and you have e-waste, great time to look around the office and pack some things up. There's also Future Assembly happening this Friday and Saturday at the showgrounds. It's um, it's at futureassembly.io if you want to find out more information. There's still tickets available, and it's an incredible lineup. It's a big lineup there. It looks pretty good. I'm I'm pretty keen to see what's going on in the tech scene here. Uh, they've got all sorts of um, different variations on, on what you would think the future would be. So it's Absolutely. definitely worth going. Yeah, I'm particularly um, looking forward to Amelia Schmidt on how engineering, design, and business can learn from each other but thank you to our guests this evening from that startup show Anna Reeves and Ahmed Salam and also thank you to Robin Villan this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au